The Holy Spirit, through Paul, encourages Timothy and also the church to remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing upon us as we examine your word. Father, as we look at it for truth, Lord, might you illumine our hearts to the truth of its teaching. Where there be strength in us, O Lord, may we be, at courage, be of courage to know that you are at work in us. Where there might be any weakness in us, O Lord, might we sense the shame and the guilt. But also might we sense the love offered to us and the forgiveness offered to us through you by your Son. So, Father, quicken our steps that we might be holy and blameless in your sights, all workmen approved by you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For seven of the eight summers from the years 2002 to 2010, I worked as a low-voltage technician installing computer, phone, internet, and security systems predominantly on commercial construction sites. I know, I know, it's hard to believe I didn't always wear a robe in life. But in that season of life, I exchanged what was a relatively uh, preppy style of clothing to a hard hat, steel-toed boots, and a work belt. I came home working sometimes 12 and 14 hours, having my face and skin, my pores caked with dirt, my skin would itch and crawl from the installation that I got, was exposed to. Often I was extremely fatigued and I smelled like not someone who wanted to go on a date. Well, those experiences were very seminal. I look back at them very affectionately. I think about the nine schools, the four hospitals, the varying business complexes that I had an opportunity to be involved in their construction. I had a season of work at the Sam Adams Brewery in Cincinnati, Ohio, which was certainly an educational experience. And also I had the opportunity to work on the 22,000 seat basketball arena for the University of Louisville. It was a fun season in life, one different, or at least I thought earlier this week, than the experiences that I share today. But looking back and seeing the teaching of God's word today, we see here and in other places in the New Testament this theme that the Holy Spirit through Christ and also uh, through Paul teases out for us to give us an understanding of how the church works and functions. The church is composed of workers, some who are approved, some who are unapproved, but all of whom belonging to the body of Christ are called to contribute to edify to her common good so that we might not be slothful or passive but that we might be rich in faith, strong in Christ and be built up together 
into the household of God. And it's this theme that Paul uses to elucidate and to tease out with greater clarity for Timothy as he considers his own work at the church in Ephesus where he serves. We remember that Timothy is a younger pastor, much younger than Paul himself. Paul is writing what seems to be his last personal letter here in 2 Timothy to Timothy. And like a man who's seen it all and experienced all the trials and hardships of ministry, he is fixed on his young student, his pupil, Timothy, being steadfast and strong in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the church will not just endure, but so that the church will flourish. And so there are two primary things that Paul is trying to do here in the paragraph that we'll be examining this morning. Paul is both trying to encourage and inspire Timothy to continue on as a worker approved. And he gives for him several ideas and concepts here in the passage about what that looks like for him as he presses on and moves forward at seeking and striving for the approval of God in his life and ministry. Well, you got the good news, there's also the contrast that so also Paul shows and reveals to us through the challenges in the church and through the examples of Hymenaeus and Philetus, what it looks like to be a workman unapproved. And while sometimes we don't like these stark contrasts, they are extremely helpful in our life because we can see all that is good with the positive examples, so also we can see all that it is negative with the negative examples. And as we consider our own souls, we can discern those areas in our life where we lean and show promise and where we need further correction in Christ. Friends, my prayer for all of us is that as Christ looks at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, as he looks at all the members, at all the individuals that belong to this church, that he will see a uniform um, workforce of workers approved for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us consider these teachings before us as we examine a worker approved, a worker unapproved, and I'd like to draw a few reflections about both of them as we conclude our sermon. Well, Paul writes to Timothy and is wanting to inspire him to be and continue forward, press forward as a workman approved by God. Firstly, he states in our passage in verse 14, remind them of these things. What is he talking about? The things that Timothy is supposed to remind the church of the glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's just been uh, teasing them out in the previous paragraph. I direct your attention there to see the richness and fullness of what it is that Paul is encouraging him. But he wants Timothy to recognize that one of his primary calling and responsibilities is to be continually reminded both for himself and also for the church that we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the first mark of a workman approved, that he or she grasps their continual need, the church's continual need, the world's continual need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Along with this is the recognition that we understand that our souls are not fixed. It's not like we grow and then reach a certain point and then plateau. No, no, no. Our souls are in a continual state of movement to and away from Jesus Christ. And the problem is, one of the problems in the church is that sometimes we neglect movement toward Christ. And so it doesn't happen immediately or overnight, but one step at a time, movement away from Christ, day by day by day by day, 
leads us miles away from the source of truth and from the new renewing graces that we need to be strengthened in Christ. Paul is encouraging Timothy as a young pastor, continually remind the church of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Continually remind them of the glory of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, their insufficiency, and their need for a life of continual repentance, humility, and restoration to him. It's those rhythms, it's those cycles that build us into understanding who we are in Christ and keeping us closer to him, not wandering away from him. The second mark that Timothy, uh, that Paul teases out for Timothy in recognizing a workman who was approved by God, he will work to diffuse meaningless quarrels and irreverent babble. Our text here specifically uh, uses the words, Paul says to Timothy, charge them before God, God, charge them before God, not to quarrel about words and later on down the passage, avoid irreverent babble. It's important to recognize that every debate or discussion requires that we start with a basic understanding of what it is we're talking about. And so often it's common to define terms or concepts first in a debate before moving forward into teasing out their meaning. Paul is not talking about that kind of arguing. He's talking about a kind of, or, of argument and discussion that never actually moves beyond the insignificant trivialities of conversation into the further depths and richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quarrels about this words are fights about nothing, things that have no eternal value, that are insignificant, that do little to advance the glory of Christ and uh, the glory of Christ in the church. And in my own experience, so often in the church, this often becomes the sticking points for us. That we fixate on the insignificant details, we make the minors the majors, and as a result, the church ends up in ruin. Paul charges Timothy to charge the church. Avoid meaningless quarrels. And also he, he encourages him to avoid irreverent babble. Here a reverent babble is the kind of language that could be fixated along a spectrum of uh, speech that we could use but should not use it as Christians. There's a range of, of language that is prohibited in Scripture, starting with, um, starting with uh, scoffing and gossip, leading to further things like slander and outright accusations, false accusations and lies toward those who are in the church. It's this spectrum that scripture itself prohibits that we not be a people who are given to gossip, to rumor, to creating and continuing to perpetuate unhealthy speech in the church, but that we are mindful of our words, that we recognize that our words are meant to build up, to do good. And when we see evil, not to be blind to it, but also to not unnecessarily belabor it so that its negativity continues to hurt, harm, and destroy the church. Paul encourages Timothy to be mindful of his words, to diffuse meaningless quarrels, to avoid irreverent babble, and keep the focus of his ministry centered on the gospel. In light of this, he moves forward in verse 15, arguing what is probably the thesis of this whole paragraph. He says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best here. Isn't that kind of, 
use of the phrase, do your best, that we use after we're tired and exhausted and beat out and we say, oh, you know, I did my best in that project. <laughs> we know when we say that, that we don't mean we really did our best. It's kind of an afterthought that we tack on to maybe justify our action. Here, from the beginning to the end of his life, Paul is encouraging Timothy to strive with every fiber of his being every nerve in his body, every cell in his body to work for the approval of God because he recognizes that he is continually presenting himself before God. You see, a worker who is approved by God recognizes that they always stand before God's presence. This is one of the great doctrines of Christianity that God has access to his creation at all times. He is all-present, he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful. And with these attributes, he sees us, he knows us, and we always live before him. Like the great song, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for his kingdom and glory's sake. A workman approved by God recognizes that the entirety of his or her life is an argument that is being made before the Most High God of the effect and fruit of the Spirit in his or her life and their response to him. And so Paul charges Timothy to do his best, give your very best effort to glorifying God in everything you do. And the standard by which God will judge him or assess him is based upon how he rightly divides the word of truth. Paul here is using one of the metaphors in Scripture to speak about the, uh, what is now the written text of Scripture. At this point in Paul's life, in Timothy's life, the Old Testament was canonized. The New Testament was being in the process of being written and composed. The word of truth refers to the sacred writings that were given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he inspired men of old to record the things that God desired to be preserved about his actions, nature, character, and how he desired his people to live and respond before him. This right dividing implies a straight cutting, like a mason or a carpenter or someone who has to make decisions about things. You have your raw materials, the scriptures, now it's important that as you teach them and as you live them, you rightly divide them, knowing how to appropriately use them both in your speech, in your theology, in your life, in your response, in everything that you do. Timothy will be assessed ultimately upon how he handles, divides the word of truth. But not just Timothy alone. We see here that Paul's judgment of Hymenaeus and Philetus is all based upon their failure to rightly respond and teach the word of God. So all who are in the church, not just pastors, not just teachers, are being analyzed by the Lord based upon how they themselves are rightly dividing the word of truth. Are you rightly handling the truth of God in your life? Are you showing its priority in your life? Are you committed, committed to its study and understanding its truth in your life? When you see that you fall short in its teaching, are you quick to repent of that failure and seek and strive after Christ? Well, there's a fifth teaching that comes here in our passage about a workman approved by God. 
and that is that his life and ministry will be grounded upon two key themes, the absolute sovereignty of God and the absolute responsibility of men. Verse 19, Paul says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The foundation and the seal, the idea being at the very bottom of what the church is being built upon, the bedrock of what the church is being built upon, is sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows who are his. Therefore, let anyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This teases out those two great classic truths, that God is sovereign over all things. He knows those who belong to him. He is working for their good. Therefore, Anyone who claims to know the Lord or be the Lord's, make every effort to flee from every trace of iniquity in your life. Paul writes elsewhere to the church of Ephesus, there should be not even a trace, not even a hint of ungodliness in your midst. So also those who rightly understand their calling before the Lord as workmen approved are quick to flee from every form of iniquity. Well, Paul has teased out in great detail the marks of a workman that is approved by God. Let us look quickly in contrast with these points how a workman unapproved looks and works and operates. We see that in Scripture there are two fundamental kinds of workmen. There are those who are working actively against the things in the church and then there are those who are not working much at all. (laughs) I experienced this also in construction sites that it always amazed me, some of my colleagues and coworkers who were so skilled at being able to do nothing, always quick to run and get something and come back, and they knew how to use the time before our first break. They'd extend the first break so that by the end of the day, they maybe did an hour and a half's worth of work, you know, enough to be noticed spread across the day, but not actually enough to contribute to the conclusion of the project. Well, there are those that function in that way, but then there are those who, in this case, are more threatening because what they are doing is an active animosity toward the church. And he will recognize them because they will have an unteachable attitude of theological and intellectual superiority. They will engage teaching contexts primarily to debate and argue, not to learn. This is likely the context in which these quarrels emerge where Timothy is called to teach and he's teaching. And in the midst of teaching, arguments and quarrels come up that don't allow him to actually conclude what he was trying to um, argue about because he's getting caught in these side debates. They will be prone, uh, teachers that are unapproved will be prone to public scoffing, gossip, and slander of the work of church and its leaders. They will pay more attention to doctrinal claims than their own character. One of the horrifying things about this passage is that both Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they seem completely oblivious to the effects that they're having on the church. Either they're completely oblivious or they just truly don't care that they're leading people into increasing ungodliness, that they're ruining the church, that they're causing division and dissension, and that they are upsetting, like you upset a plate of food or a glass of wine, some of the faith of others. They're completely ignorant to the effects they're having on the church. They will not be reliant upon a careful exposition of the word of truth. Rather, they will espouse beliefs that are easier and perhaps more culturally acceptable to believe. It's interesting here, um, they are critiqued for teaching that the resurrection has already happened, which is partially true. Christ has been raised, 
but the future resurrection of which they speak has not um, yet occurred. So they teach openly heresy. They're blind to having swerved from the truth and they lead the church and its members into ruin, doing nothing good, leading people into ungodliness. They're evil spreading like gangrene and upsetting the faith of some. As I look back on my relatively short career, and I have a relatively small window of ministry tenure compared to the eternity of God's work in the world, but in the 20 years that I've served the church, I've had my own fair share of interactions with men and women who would be labeled unapproved workers by some of these metrics. I also have been pierced to my heart at individuals that I respected, both nationally because of their acclaim, the books they've written, the things they've done, they've fallen into ruin. And the fruit of their life has shown that, yeah, they did a lot of good, but ultimately they fell dramatically short of the standards of God. And their effect and legacy has hurt the church, hindered souls, left a wake of confusion and scandal, and perhaps irreparably harmed the faith of individuals for good. And so as you respond to the work of these kind of people, what truths should we take humbly before the Lord? The first truth is that any of us at any time could become a worker unapproved. There was a time for Hymenaeus and Philetus where they were joining the church, where they were loved by the church, their gifts and promise were something that was seen to be attractive in the church, but ultimately they proved themselves unworthy because of the quarrels, division, and dissension that they were causing in the church. That could be our story. And some of us perhaps today are already walking away from the truth and don't even realize it. Pause for a moment. Consider your souls. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> and see what Christ would have you see how Christ would have you respond to the teaching of his word. The second hard truth is while we may not be completely um, unapproved workers, any of us at any time can also be guilty of pushing the agenda of an unapproved worker in the church. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ the centerpiece of our own hope and expectation for the church? Is the preaching and teaching of his word, the faithful administration of the sacraments, is that our hope in which we are looking for as we consider our own engagement in the church? Are we humbly striving to use our gifts in whatever capacity they might be from cleaning a floor or stacking chairs to discipling a troubled soul in the truth of God's word. Thirdly, the third thing I want to bring out here is that there is a great gift to the church that comes from the Holy Spirit through the difficult ministry of unapproved workers. You see, in everything that God is doing for the church, he is building in us hearts of resilience. Do we recognize that there's a strength that only comes on the other side of great adversity? And though the expense is great pain and emotional toil and frustration and hurt and many tears, as we may even experience betrayal from our friends and individuals that we have shared so many good meals and stories and laughs with, there is also an appreciation and understanding on the other side of that that only comes through the trials of those valleys. Think about Christ himself. And as Christ looks out at the church, he knows all of her imperfections. Every single one of them. And part of participation in Christ 
And part of being Christ-like is that we also see and know and understand in our own perspective the true effects and weight of sin in the world and in the church. Part of that suffering and that connection and sorrow that we feel is a shared experience with Christ as he also looks upon the world and the church that falls short of his glory. But it was when she was dead in her trespasses and sins. It was when she was ugliest and the most vile and kicking and screaming against the most high. It was then that Christ laid down his life for the church. Don't let Satan win when you've been abused and victimized by those who are unapproved workers in the church. Take a moment, pause. Consider Christ's own love for the church and press forward, laying down your life as one who is at times crucified. And I'm sorry for the scars. May they not be from me or any of us in leadership here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. But let us all press forward into Christ-likeness because it's on the other side of that valley that comes resurrection. And with resurrection comes eternal life. Let us pray. Almighty God, our hearts are exposed before you. And so, Father, build us up and comfort us with the warmth and the encouragement and strength that can only come from your Holy Spirit. Bind our wounds, encourage the downtrodden, and, oh Lord, give us joy to see that on the other side of the trials of this life, there is an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond anything that we can compare. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we give you thanks. Amen.